dominion of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son, in whom we have redemption and forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in, both in the heavens and on earth, invisible and invis- visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church. And he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might, will come to have first place in everything. And now for our time this afternoon for consideration. It, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of, the cro- of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. May God add a blessing to the reading of his word. You may be seated. Again, we will consider verse 19, specifically the word fullness. Again, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. Last time we were together in Colossians, we considered verse 18, which spoke of Christ being the head, specifically the head of the church. We know that Christ is head over all things, and we considered how Christ is also head of the church. Now, we will consider today, we want to answer what is the fullness that Paul speaks of and how it relates to our salvation in Jesus Christ. Again, we will answer what is the fullness that Paul speaks of when he says that the fullness of what dwelt in Christ and then how it relates to us and our salvation. What I'm going to, the answer is going to be simply this, so you already know. The fullness that Paul speaks of is going to be grace. That Jesus Christ as man has the fullness of grace, whereby he is, he distributes that grace to the members of his body so that we will be like him. Will we be like him? So much of what I'm going to say, um, is going to, is going to, um, harmonize nicely with what Pastor Antonio said in the morning, specifically in the latter half of how the, how the, the holy, the three, the three persons of the Trinity indwell us and we receive grace in order that we may reflect the very ones who are indwelling us um, by faith, hope, and love. So, what is it meant by fullness? What is it meant by fullness? Again, St. Paul says, for it was the Father's good pleasure for the fullness to dwell in him. Now, there are two ways to interpret this text. There's two ways to interpret the word fullness, okay? There's the popular interpretation that says that the fullness that Paul speaks of is fullness of deity, Fullness of divinity, meaning that all of it means to be God. Jesus Christ, either as God or as man, has. He possesses. Or rather, not as man, I'm sorry, only as God. Um, the fullness of divinity um, that that is in the eternal Son is had here, or, or rather, this is the interpretation For some, the text reads as such, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness of deity to dwell in him. Again, it was the Father's good pleasure for the fullness of deity to dwell in the eternal Son of God. While it is true that the fullness of deity dwells in the eternal Son of God, this interpretation doesn't connect very well or or as good as uh, the next verse. Verse 20 says, and through him to reconcile all things to himself. 
whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Here we see St. Paul seems to connect the fullness of verse 9 with the process and results of redemption in verse 20. Again, Paul connects the fullness of verse 19 to the process and the results of redemption in verse 20. In other words, as John Eadie says, whatever is needed to save a fallen uh, mankind, which Paul speaks of in verse 20, and restore harmony to the universe, which Paul speaks of in verse 20, is treasured up in Jesus Christ, what's spoken of in verse 19. That Jesus Christ then was, as man, fully furnished to merit our salvation. That Jesus Christ was fully furnished to merit our salvation. So this fullness then, this fullness that Paul speaks of is going to be grace. Specifically habitual grace. We'll, We'll get there. But the fullness that Paul speaks of in verse 19 that dwells in the man Jesus Christ is going to be the fullness of grace, specifically habitual grace. But we'll get there. John Gill says, the fullness by which is meant... Not the fullness of deity. So John, so John Gill is, is right in his interpretation. He says the fullness here is not the fullness of, of Godhead. Though it is read by some the fullness of Godhead. There is a fullness of grace in him out of which saints receive. And grace for grace or a large abundance of it. The fullness of the spirit of grace and all the graces and gifts of the spirit is in him and all the blessings of grace. So John Gill is saying the fullness is not the fullness of deity. It doesn't pertain specifically to Christ as God, but rather the fullness is pertaining to Christ as man. That Christ as man has the fullness. The fullness of what? The fullness of grace. Because he has the fullness of the Holy Spirit. And if you have the fullness of the Holy Spirit, you have the fullness of grace. And you have the fullness of the gifts. Right? Um, Saints, you have that, by the way. You have the Holy Spirit, and you have grace, and you have gifts. So when St. Paul says, for it was the Father's good pleasure for the fullness to dwell, the fullness here he speaks of is grace. And this, again, interpretation fits nicely with verse 20, what comes after it. That through him to reconcile all things to himself, for the things on earth are things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Christ then, from the moment of conception, from the moment of conception, was given the fullness of grace for what? Well, the fullness of grace is really a byproduct of what's called the grace of union. We'll, we'll explain that in just a moment. But we can say that Christ, it was fitting for Christ to have the fullness of grace as man so that he can carry out our salvation and merit our salvation. That he had to be fully furnished in order for us to be saved. In other words, Jesus, God doesn't, when the, when, when the eternal son assumes human flesh, um, that human flesh Right is is supernaturally elevated, and in order for him to, in order for him to do something that no natural man can do, what is that? That is to obtain a supernatural end, as Pastor Antonio said this morning. Perfect beatitude, the beatific vision. What Adam failed to obtain, Christ obtains. The natural man cannot obtain a supernatural reward. Well, Christ is a natural man, yes, but also he receives a supernatural principle within him. The Holy Spirit, grace, gifts. We'll, get, we'll talk about that in just a moment. What does it mean for Christ to have the fullness of grace? 
What does it mean for him to have the fullness of grace? Again, we're speaking of Christ as man with respect to his humanity. He has the fullness of grace. The fullness of grace here, or rather the word full, the word full signifies um, that Christ as man possessed grace as much as a human can possess grace. That Jesus Christ as man possessed grace as much as a human can possess grace. Meaning that there is no further giving of grace that God needed to give to Christ. You need the furtherance of grace, which is called actual grace. Those are those motions that God gives to the believer in order for you to overcome sin, overcome temptation. Jesus Christ doesn't need, you know, when he's when he's battling Satan in the garden, he doesn't need actual grace. He, needs, he doesn't need himself to be actualized to obey the word of God, to obey the will of God. He has already the fullness of grace, the fullness of grace. As Thomas Aquinas says, in its highest possible excellence and its greatest possible extension to all its effects. Christ's grace is most excellent. But also Christ's grace is full because it extends. It extends it extends past one or two persons. It extends to all those who place their faith in Christ. So when you get to heaven, you see all these bodies, right? You're going to say to yourself, man, look how far wide the grace of Jesus Christ extends. Okay? All right. Now, what do we mean when I say grace? We say this word grace a lot. Right. We sing of it. Um, we say it uh, when we you know, maybe if you're eating, you might say, let's say grace or something like that. Or you say, by God's grace, I'll be there or whatever. What do we mean when we say grace? What do we mean when we say grace? Well, grace is a mountain of a doctrine, um, a very high mountain of a doctrine that has a lot of distinctions, <clears throat> a lot of distinctions. But let's first answer when we think of grace, where do we locate grace in the life of God? Where do we locate grace in the life of God? Okay. In other words, you all have heard of what's called the attributes of God, right? The attributes of God. Where do we place grace among those attributes? Do we call, and is it right and proper to consider grace as an attribute of God? An attribute of God are those perfections that contain no imperfection. Again, an attribute of, so if you ever heard of, you know, the attributes of God, you say, what's an attribute of God? Simply put, it's a perfection that contains no imperfection. That's why wrath can't be an attribute. It pertains in perfection, right? <clears throat> love is an attribute of God, okay? Love is an attribute of God. God's goodness is an attribute of God. His mercy is an attribute, okay? What about grace, then? Can we say God has an attribute of grace? Is that fair to say? Well, I would say no. Grace is not an attribute of God, but rather... Grace is an operation of God's will that manifests his goodness. Again, grace is an attribute, grace is a manifestation of God's goodness. So, for instance, Pastor Antonio has spoken frequently, regularly on the wrath of God. Well, the wrath of God is not in God, properly speaking, but rather we see the wrath of God as a manifestation of his justice. Right? It's God's, you could say it like this, it's, the wrath of God is God's justice in a negative mode. Okay? And what we are saying then with God's grace is it is God showing you 
his goodness, showing you his love. So when God extends grace, specifically salvific grace, to to uh, to one, he's showing outwardly. He's manifesting something true about him, which is what? God is good. Man, when you think about your salvation in Jesus Christ, what do you say normally? What's the first word that might pop up? Man, God is so good. He is so good. And that goodness that God has in himself is seen through what? Grace. Grace, then, is God, out of his love, his perfect love and goodness, giving the creature himself in order for the creature to participate in his goodness. You see that? Again, grace is not really stuff. It's not stuff. It's not substance. It's God giving himself. And God is saying, God is saying, um, um, human being, I want you to participate in my goodness. Pastor Antonio talked about this this morning, right? This, this, this fullness of joy that's never ending. Well, who has that? God has that. And God says, I will extend to you grace so that you can experience what I, <laughs> uh, loosely speaking, experience. You will experience, you will know what I know. It's, an, it's, it's him giving himself to you and saying, and he's raising you above your natural capacities to, to share, participate in his very life. <clears throat> As one theologian says, grace is a manifestation of that goodness and that desire to share his goodness with others. Isn't that a beautiful way to think about grace? It's God's goodness by which he shares his goodness with us. Which constitutes the very essence of God. So when God gives grace, he's expressing his goodness and love to the creature. And this is how God, and this is how God's goodness is expressed in scriptures. God says to Moses in Exodus 33, 19, and he said, I, uh, I myself will make my goodness pass before you. I will make my goodness pass before you. And I, and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Now, that's interesting. God says, I'll make my goodness pass before you in Exodus 33. And then in Exodus 34, what does he do? He passes by him. And what's proclaimed? The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in faithfulness and truth. In other words, God's grace then, when he, when he shows his grace, what's manifesting? His mercy. His patience. His faithfulness. It must be noted too, saints, um, as you already know, but just to remind you all, that when God gives grace, it's unmerited. When God gives grace, it's unmerited. This might be the definition that you know of, is that grace is unmerited favor of God, and surely it is. And this is the beauty of grace, is it not? Not only is it an extension of God's goodness by which you participate in his goodness, but also, too, you cannot earn it. You can earn many things in this world. You can't earn God's grace. You can't earn God's favor. Romans eleven six. For it is by grace is no. For if, if it is by grace is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace will no longer be grace. Okay. So grace not only is unmerited, but also grace is a participation in the very goodness of God. It's God showing you, manifesting His goodness. Now, what does grace do? What does grace do? Grace does something. You hear this all the time. Pastor Antonio said earlier, prayer is a means of grace. The Lord's Supper is a means of grace, right? The preached word is a means of grace, meaning that through the instrument of a man and through words, grace comes to you. Through bread and through wine, grace comes to you. Then what does it do to me then? What does grace do to me? 
Grace is not something merely extrinsic, but also intrinsic. It's not extrinsic, it's also intrinsic, meaning grace does something to you, saints. Grace actually really does something to you. Just as when Adam sat in the garden and it affected you, right? How did it affect you? Your whole soul is now defiled. Well, grace then actually does something to you. It restores your soul. No one has expressed this better than Thomas Aquinas. He says, grace um, does not destroy nature, but perfects it. If you remember anything with regard to, to the relationship between grace and nature, remember that quote there, that grace does not destroy nature, but perfects it. In other words, what Thomas is saying is when God gives you grace, he doesn't just wipe you away. But rather, he restores who you are. And then also, too, he perfects who you are. That's what grace does. It, it touches the very marrow of who you are. Just as Adam's sin touched the very marrow of who you are, grace touches the very marrow of who you are. It is, it is God conquering what Adam did to you. Grace, then, is the principle by which um, it heals who we are elevates who we are in order to live the way God has called for us to live. Saints of God, the reason I call you a saint of God is because you have grace. The the reason why you're able to live the way in which God has prescribed for you to live is because you have grace. The natural man cannot live unto God. But only the supernatural man. Who is who? Those who have the Holy Spirit, those who have Christ dwelling within them, those who have the Father within them. So then what are we saying then at conversion? At conversion, saints, this is lovely here. At conversion, God heals and elevates our nature. God heals and elevates you. And before, and mind you, these are things you already experienced. Has there, has there already not been in healing? There has surely has. But also there's been an elevation in your nature. We'll get to there. But by giving us the Holy Spirit, who also gives to us the virtues of faith, hope, and love, which is the Holy Trinity dwelling within you. Okay? It is by faith, then, that you believe Jesus Christ. It is by hope that you believe in Jesus Christ. It is love that you love Jesus Christ. This, saints, this, This faith that you believe upon Jesus Christ is by which he imputes his righteousness to you. Thereby you have a right standing before God. But also he sends the Holy Spirit to sanctify our souls. So on this earth, saints, on this earth, you can be holy. The Holy Spirit gives to us what's called habitual grace. Habitual grace. This gets us into our text. Let's consider the grace of Jesus Christ. Remember, our text says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for the fullness of, of uh, the fullness to dwell in him. We have said that the fullness that dwells in Christ is grace. So Christ as man receives the fullness of grace. <clears throat> when theologians speak of the grace of Christ, there is a threefold way. The second way, the second way is really the, the, the predominant way we, we will, we will uh, um, talk about. But there's three ways. First, there's the grace of union. Second, there's habitual grace. And third, there's capital grace. Let's just quickly run down these. First, when theologians say the grace of union, what they're speaking of is the hypostatic union with respect to the human nature. Okay? 
with respect to the human nature. You know, the hypostatic union, simply put, is the person of the word uniting himself to a true human nature. That's really what it is. Okay? It's the, that's what it is. It's the, the person of the word uniting himself to a human nature whereby he now is God and man. Simply put. But when we say grace of union, though, we're saying something specifically on the, on the human nature side of the hypostatic union. When the eternal son goes into union with his human nature, from the human nature side, it receives a gift and a grace. Again, again, it's not as if um, there's a human nature out there, which is not even true metaphysically, but there's a human nature out there that God says, oh, that human nature is doing good. I'm going to unite myself to that human nature, whereby that human nature merits to be united to me. That's not what happens. But rather, the human nature that the eternal son assumes is given a grace. It's given a gift. It's given something that it, it, it cannot merit. Why? Because grace cannot be merited. So from the human nature side, it's called the grace of union because the human nature did not earn to be merit, to be united to the second person of the Trinity. That human nature, saints, is closer to God than us right now. Because it is, it is, it is, it is, it is hypostatically united to the person of the Word. This human nature is given the grace, as St. Thomas says, Aquinas, the first is the grace of union, whereby the human nature, with no merits proceeding, received the gift of being united to the person of the Son of God. This is a grace. This is a grace that the human nature receives. That it will be united to the person of the Word. And this union, saints, is what formally sanctifies the humanity of Christ. Now, if one was to ask you, what, what makes the human nature of Christ holy? What formally, what, what, what actually makes Christ's human nature holy? What makes him holy? You might say, well, because he's given the fullness of the Spirit. No. That's secondary. The primary way the human nature of Christ is holy and sanctified is because that human nature is the human nature of God. Because it has been united to God. That is why. One theologian says, Jesus was born holy. He was holy even from the first moment of conception. By the personal union of his humanity with the word. Thus, his soul from the start sanctified by the divinity of the word. By the grace of the personal union with the only begotten son of the father. This point is so essential for us to remember, saints. So essential. What accounts for Christ's humanity to be holy and spotless is none other than him be united to God. Just as, and this is a, this is a substantial, this is a, a substantial union. Your, yours is an accidental union, but the reason why you're, you can be called holy is because you're united to Christ. Right? It's just that yours is accidental. Alright? But with Jesus' humanity though, it's substantial. The reason why he is holy, his humanity is holy, is because he's united to the person of the word. <clears throat> What's the reason why Christ cannot sin? What's the reason why Christ as man could not sin? Because his humanity is the, the humanity of God. What's the reason why Jesus Christ, saints, can merit for you salvation for all eternity? In other words, what's the reasoning behind the blood of Jesus Christ being able to atone for your sins right now in the present? How does this still have efficacy and power? Because the blood of Jesus Christ is the blood of God. That's why. That is why. 
<clears throat> one text that speaks of this, Luke 1.35, the angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason, you shall, uh, for that reason also the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. The angel telling Mary, right, the one in your womb is holy. The one in your room is holy, not accidentally like you and I, but substantially because it is it is God in the flesh. Okay, let's consider habitual grace now. This is really the meat of the text. Habitual grace. The fullness of grace that indwelled Jesus Christ is what's called habitual grace. You might have never heard of habitual grace before, um, and that's okay. What is habitual grace? Simply put, habitual grace is God infusing which is really just a word that's it's it's really pouring okay when i say infusing or pastor antonio says infusing it means he pours he pours into the soul grace that creates inside the person a supernatural quality a supernatural quality to be holy and to perform holy acts habitual grace then think of habitus right Something that you just have. It's like a garment, like a jacket. You just put on. Okay? It doesn't leave you. Um, God pours into the soul grace, which is a supernatural quality that enables you to do something that you could not do as a natural man, which is what? Do supernatural acts. Be holy. This is all, of course, a byproduct of the Holy Spirit. Okay? So... I'm not trying to throw the Holy Spirit out of it. This is a byproduct of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes and dwells you and also brings with him grace and the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the virtues. Okay. In other words, by the giving of the Holy Spirit, God has also given to the believer a supernatural quality of soul, which is habitual grace. And with that grace, we receive the theological virtues of faith, hope and love, which enable us to perform good acts that are pleasing to God. Okay. One theologian says, and I'm going to explain this in just a moment. One theologian says, habitual grace is a stable condition of grace. When I wake up, I make an act of faith or love in virtue of this permanent root, which readies or remains in me, ready to act. In other words, congregation, habitual grace is a gift of the Holy Spirit that properly orders our soul and the powers of our soul to do God's will, to do what God has commanded us to do. Let me explain. <clears throat> God has made us with a soul. The soul is what animates the body, right? You cannot do anything apart from your soul. This is why I said this in the morning, but if you go to a funeral, the one that's laying there in the coffin, you're, you're yelling out their name. Hey, can you hear me? They can't hear you. Why? Because they don't have a soul that animates their ears in order for them to hear you. The reason why you can see, to have the power of seeing, is because you have a soul. Okay? With the soul, you now have also powers or faculties. What are the two highest powers or faculties of the soul? Your intellect and your will. Okay, your intellect and your will, your intellect and your will allows for you to do things that dogs and plants cannot do, which is what simply put to know God and to love God. That's what the powers of the soul, the two highest powers, at least enable you to do, to know and to will. Okay. However, things changed once Adam sinned. Things changed actually drastically when Adam sinned. When Adam sinned, when he sinned, he plunged our soul to a place where we no longer now can know God the way he ought to be known and love God the way he ought to be loved. So then what needs to happen then? 
Something needs to happen to us within us. That we need grace in order for our souls, right, to be healed. Remember, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit. For they are foolishness to him. They cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Then what do we need? In order for us to understand a spiritual being the way he ought to be known and loved, what do we need? We need a supernatural principle abiding in us. This is why Adam could not merit um, eternal life apart from him receiving grace, because the natural man cannot merit supernatural life. Right? Okay, so then what happens then? God gives to us grace. He gives to us grace, and what does grace do? As Thomas says, grace heals and perfects us. Grace allows us to do something that we cannot do naturally. What are the two things we can't do naturally? The two things that we can't do naturally. We cannot know God the way he ought to be known. And we cannot love God the way he ought to be loved. God gives to us grace, right? And with grace, he gives to us faith, hope, and love. And what does faith do? Faith heals your intellect and elevates your intellect. To do what? So when you hear the gospel, you no longer say, that doesn't make any sense. But actually, it's reasonable. In Adam, the gospel in Jesus Christ was not reasonable. But when God gives grace to you, when he, when he gives you the theological virtue of faith, faith that you cannot earn, but he gives you as a gift, now when you present it with Jesus Christ and the saving mysteries of Christ, you say, that is very reasonable. My mind will ascend to that truth. The ascending is what? Hope. I will grab onto that. And then what? He raises our wills to do something that we in our natural state cannot do, which is what? Love God. You see how salvation, saints, is yes, is yes, us having a right standing before God, but also in that right standing, God also gives us himself and he changes us from within. You ask yourself, how in the world am I, am I different than, this, than the person I used to be 20, 30 years ago? Because of grace, because of the Holy Spirit, because God is re, and he is, he is removing Every single bad thing about you and every single lasting image of Adam that is within you. That's what grace is doing. It, he is elevating all who you are so that you can now live in a supernatural mode of being. That's why Pastor Antonio has said, and I have said, I think I've said, that the life of heaven starts now. That no, we're not, we're not in a particular place, but we have a supernatural mode of being right now. Right? <clears throat> so... This is how theologians spoke of what, what God does to us in the inside. God does something to us in the inside. Okay? John Owen says, he gives us habitual grace, a principle of grace, opposed to the principle of lust. Remember, in, when you were in your sin, what's the principle that, uh, that it just stayed with you and you always followed it? Pride, lust, envy, strife, those things. But God then gives you a new principle by which you abide by. Something, that's, something that, that is permanent, right? This is the grace that dwells in us, makes us abode with us, which according to the distinct faculties of... Okay, we're going to do that. What John Owen is saying, by God giving us habitual grace, is given to us an abiding permanent principle, 
where we do what? We no longer live to the flesh, but we live according to the Spirit. That's what habitual grace is. It is you no longer living according to the flesh. It's you living according to the Spirit. Paul says in Romans 8, 5 through 8, For those who are in according with the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. It's proper. It's natural. It's natural. They cannot do anything other than that. But those who are in according with the Spirit, the things of the Spirit. Meaning what? God has elevated your mind to a spiritual way. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace. This grace raises our nature to do supernatural acts and perform supernatural good. In other words, saints, when you do something, when you do a good, right, does God see it as a good? He does see it as a good. He does see your 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 works that you do as a good. As Pastor Antonio said at the very closing uh, remarks in his sermon, the different ways, and brother, you, you got you to gotta, you gotta do a sermon just on the various ways, right, in which we can stay awake. But, but the things that we do to stay awake, the things that we do that, 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 uh, that keep our clothes on, right, are good works. And God sees them as good works. Isn't that amazing? That God sees your works, who once could not produce good works, now sees them as good works. John Davenant explains, he says, because the works which are called good are not done under the impulse, not only done under the impulse of the Holy Spirit exciting them. So the works that you do are, yes, under the impulse of the Holy Spirit, for sure, but also by means of qualities of infused grace which exceed the order of nature. That is to say, saints of God, there are good works that you can do that your unbelieving friends cannot do. What's the reason? Because you have grace. You have grace. Remember, grace is nothing other than God himself. Um, For the Spirit of God not only excites the faithful, but by a certain secret motion to produce good works. He infuses unto them, impresses upon them certain habitual permanent gifts, such as faith, hope, and love. We just said that, right? When God gives you grace, he also gives you faith, hope, and love. Faith, hope, and love. I didn't say this. I'll just say this quickly. Faith, hope, and love, what it does is it corresponds to the powers of the soul. That's what it does. Which is nothing, and faith, hope, and love is nothing, nothing other than the invisible missions of the Holy Trinity. Okay, so when Pastor Antonio talks about the Holy Trinity dwelling within us, within us, you ask yourself, how in the world do I know that, outwardly speaking, experientially, by faith, hope, and love? By faith, hope, and love. Isn't that amazing? Um, by the help of which we are more pleasing, promptly, and firmly produce the things which are good and acceptable to God. Since then, the good works of the regenerate flow from the supernatural grace, habitual grace. They necessarily have in them goodness truly supernatural. Remember, saints, again, God's grace is his goodness given to you. So when God, when God sees your work, he's really seeing, he's really applauding himself. It's God working in and through you. Just like when God crowns you at the very, you know, last day, he's really crowning himself. He's crowning his own gifts. By which, by which you cooperated with. This is all in the realm of sanctification, by the way. But <clears throat> Where do we see this idea of, of habitual grace in the scriptures, saints? Well, already we see it in Romans 8. But also, Ezekiel 39, 26 alludes to it. It says, moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove your heart of stone and, and, uh, from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. The heart is usually represents the whole soul. 
And God says, I'll give you a, a new soul. Or rather, I will, I will, uh, I will, I will cleanse your soul and perfect your soul. Second Corinthians 2.17. This Paul, after this teaching, this, this text is going to take on a whole new meaning as it did for me. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. He's a new creature. Romans 5.5, and hope does not disappoint. Because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Holy Spirit has been given to you. And what does the Holy Spirit bring with him? Charity, love. Which is what? The theological virtue. Okay. In summary, habitual grace is a quality of the soul that makes one live the life the way God has commanded us to live. With habitual grace, we receive the virtues of faith, hope, and love, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that rightly orders our minds to know God, our wills to love God, and our passions to desire God, simply put. And what St. Paul is saying in our text is this, that Jesus Christ in his human nature had the fullness of habitual grace. He had the fullness of this ordering to God. John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Isaiah 11.2, which speaks of not only the gift of the Holy Spirit, but also the gifts of the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, saints, that you have as well. Pastor Antonio said this morning, so thankful that he did, that Jesus Christ, um, because he has in his humanity this this unexpressible fullness of joy that he extends to us, right? The, one of the one of the one of the byproducts of that is by him knowing God, which we call the beatific vision, knowing God the way he ought to be known, right? And enjoying God the way he ought to enjoy. Well, Isaiah here is saying the spirit of wisdom and understanding will come upon this man, Jesus Christ. And it is this. This spirit of wisdom, understanding, of counsel, and of the fear of the Lord, right, is what furnishes Christ to be our mediator. These verses speak of the fullness of grace that that Paul is speaking of in our text. And because Jesus Christ has the fullness of grace, at every moment in his life, saints, he as man does the will of God and performs supernatural acts to God. Because he has the fullness of grace, at every moment of his life, he does the will of God. Luke 2.49. And they said to them when they're looking for the young Jesus, Why is it that you were looking for me? Jesus says this. Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? Already at age 12, he's doing the will of the father. John 4.34. Jesus explained, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. John 5.30, I can do nothing, I myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Luke 22.42, Jesus says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. How can Christ say that? Because he has the fullness of the Holy Spirit dwelling within him, and he has the fullness of grace that enables his soul, that, that aligns his soul. Right? There's like a, in Christ, there's like, a, there's like a direct line from his foot to God, that he is ordered properly to God, and he's just following the will of God in whatever he does. Now, saints, you might, this is not merely just for us to know Christ properly speaking, but also this is a gospel issue. This is a gospel issue. With regard to our salvation, remember the words of St. Paul in Romans 5.19. For as though 
As through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So also through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. Christ having the fullness of grace, saints, in his humanity, whereby enables him to, to do the will of God, to overcome temptation, the temptation that we can never, ever, ever experience. Well, Paul says that he needs to obey. He needs to obey. That our, our salvation, saints, rests on obedience. It rests on the obedience of the second man. Because the first man failed to render that obedience. So in order for, in order for, in order for Christ to obey then, he needs to do what Adam failed to do. He needs to utilize what Adam failed to utilize. When the serpent was crawling in the garden, Adam should have, should have practiced virtue. He should have practiced virtue. He should have clinged upon the promises of God by faith. He should have hoped for something better. And he should have loved God above all else instead of loving his own pride, his own sin, right? Our salvation rests upon one who is holy and obedient. In order for Christ as man to never sin in thought or action, Christ ever, ever sinned in thought and deed, then we would be toast. His human soul needed the fullness of grace to do what Adam failed to do, and is offer perfect obedience to God. This, saints, is, I think, what Paul is getting at in verse 19, specifically the fullness, okay? That this one who came to save us was fully furnished to save us. You know, saints, people love to talk about Christ being our example, and he is to some respect our example. But let me tell you this, though, that Jesus Christ is not just, he's not just one person in a race of fallen humanity awaiting salvation. He's not in the midst of us. He takes on our punishment, sure. But Jesus Christ as man is not awaiting salvation. Jesus Christ is the Savior. He is, a, a, yes, amen, he, we, and that's what we need. I don't need someone, <clears throat> saints, I don't need someone to go through what I go, went through and knowing that he went, you know, he, he, uh, he overcame it. I need someone who actually overcame it and who was fully furnished to overcome it. And that's what we have in Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is not in need of salvation. But he's the Savior. And whatever he needs to save me, God gave it to him. He gave it to him in its fullest measure. And oh, and oh, to Satan, as Satan will do on that final day, as Pastor Antonio said, Satan tried to destroy Jesus Christ. He tried to destroy him at birth, killing all these babies through Pontius. He, he, he tried to, he tried to, he tried to, he tried to slay our Savior in the wilderness. He thought he had the Savior out cold while the Savior was on the cross and that tomb was shut. The saints of God, remember as Pastor Antonio said this morning, as Christ said, that the gates of hell will not prevail. There is no demon, there is no devil that can overcome our Christ. This is why, saints, grace is greater than sin. Grace overcame and it continues to overcome. 
it give, God gives you a, a permanent staple that stays with you, which says that you can overcome. Because the same grace that's been given to Christ has been given to you. And this is what's called Christ's capital grace. So I'll just, I'll just end with this one. Jesus Christ's capital grace. And what that simply means is this, that Jesus Christ, as the head of the church, is the distributor, is the source of our grace. He is the source of our grace. He has the, there's no reason for Christ to have the fullness of grace if he's just stingy and keeps it to himself. Jesus Christ has the fullness of grace in order for the head to distribute to the members of his body so that the body can be like the head. We make up one Christ. Christ's capital grace, then, is the source of grace in the believer's life. This is what we read in John. 1 John 1.16 For of his fullness we have received and grace upon grace. From the fullness that Christ has in his humanity, he gives it to us and he shares it with us so that the same, the same joy, as Pastor Antonio said this morning, the same joy that Christ has as man, he says, you will have. The same peace he has as man, you have. And you experience it already now, saints. You experience it now. That the grace that Christ has as man is not to be any way distinguished from the grace that we receive right now. The grace that you're receiving right now, as I am preaching the word to you, as the word of God is a means of grace, it's coming from Christ. It's coming from Christ. We can get into the technicalities of that later, but it comes from the man, Jesus Christ. For by grace we have received, um, the grace that really Jesus Christ as man received, which means what? That you are actually really becoming internally like Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ saying is here, let me give you what is mine so that you can be like me. That's what's happening now. That's what happens at prayer. That's what happens at the Lord's Supper in just a few moments. In a most intimate way, we are going to actually feed upon Jesus Christ. And when we do, Jesus Christ is giving us something about himself. Just as, you know, when we eat, food gives us nutrition, gives us proteins, carbohydrates, fast, things like that. Jesus Christ says, I will give you grace in order for you to be more like me in this life. In this life. And it will be perfected in the next life. That's to come. One theologian said in closing, the whole human race depends on grace, first possessing a grace as head, in order that they might in turn possess it as body. Possess it as body. So saints of God, what do we do now? We ask the Lord to continue to pour out grace into our souls. When I, when we say, Pastor Antonio and I say, Lord, give me yourself, that's a, that's a reality. Lord, really give me you. Give me all of who you are so that all of me can be like you. And this is the beauty of our salvation, saints. That God, God says in his word, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Here's the beauty of it. God gives you what he commands. He gives you what he commands. He gives you himself. And in return, you, re, you reflect, right? And you become like him. Let's, let's pray.